Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning and give us your Holy Spirit to illumine the Holy Scriptures to us. Father, we pray that you'd be with us as we come into these worship spaces, some of us filled with faith, some of us filled with doubt, some of us filled with skepticism uh, towards you and everything in between. Uh, Lord, would you meet us with your Son, assure us of your great love for us and your forgiveness for us, convict us of our sin, and drive us, Father, into the reality that you have for us in your Son and for the world. Do a gracious work now, Jesus, we pray in thanksgiving and in your name. Amen. You may be seated. talking a little bit about my college experience last week. Let me get back to it this week as well. Some of you know that I began to seriously follow Jesus as a college student, and that meant for me, as a new Christian at a secular college, there were some bumpy moments as I tried to integrate my faith into classroom settings. Here is one of them. I was taking, as a philosophy major, a class junior or senior year, so towards the end, an upper-level philosophy class on utilitarian ethics. Who knows what utilitarian ethics is? Well, if you want to make a good moral choice according to utilitarian ethics, what you have to do is consider the consequences of your action, and you need to make the moral choice that maximizes the good for the maximum number of people. Pretty straightforward, right? Maximize the good for as many people as possible. And that's what a good moral choice looks like. And so for the final paper, the professor said, just do anything, write something about utilitarian ethics one way or another, just make sure that it's good. And so my idea was, I'm going to write a compare and contrast paper, utilitarian ethics on one hand, Christian ethics on the other hand, and Christian world life view everything and then why Christian ethics is better. It was going to be an uphill battle for sure and I'd had some bumpy moments specifically with with this professor who is not a Christian and from my perspective in the heat of the moment I thought I was shot down over and over again in class for my faith. So we had a couple of heart-to-hearts and office hours that actually went really well and the professor told me this, look Jim, I'm not against you. I'm not persecuting you for your faith. In today's language, you would have said, dude, I'm not trying to cancel you, but just understand that my job as your professor and professor of all of my students is to agree with what I think is correct 
and to disagree with what I think is incorrect. I think Christianity is incorrect. And the arguments for Christianity are not as good as the arguments against Christianity. If I thought the arguments for Christianity were better, I would be a Christian. But I'm not. And so you're welcome to bring your faith into the classroom, but make sure that you can justify it and make sure that it's well argued. I really respected that from my professor, and a couple of those conversations have stayed with me and informed who I am as a believer in a lot of different ways. But I said, okay, I got this. This is going to be great. This paper is going to be awesome. Fast forward two weeks, three weeks, a month. The paper was not awesome. And it turned out that I had bitten off just much, much more than I could chew. Uh, global compare and contrast utilitarian ethics versus Christian world life ethical view, why this is better in 20 pages. It just didn't really work. And for in classic philosophical ethics, the point of ethical systems to a large extent are working through different dilemmas, high stakes moral dilemmas, like this practical everyday example. This is, this is catnip for philosophy students of ethics. Say you're in a lifeboat, as we are, you know, most days of the week, and you have one life preserver, but there are two people outside of your boat. One is a scientist that has the cure for cancer, but hasn't put pen to paper yet, one life preserver. On the other side of the boat, of course, is your mama. Who do you save? Well, discuss. And you can problematize it a little bit more. Well, what if the scientist has a, thinks he or she has a cure for cancer, but isn't quite sure? It's not a done deal. And what if in the lifeboat, you are Randall Tex Cobb in Raising Arizona, and you have a tattoo that says, Mama didn't love me. How does that inform your ethical decisions in, in that moment? So philosophy class, primetime ethics are all about these high stakes moral dilemmas. But then on the other hand, this is what I was trying to get at in my paper, Christianity and Christian ethics is not just those high stakes moral dilemma type of situations, but it's about everything. It relates to when you're making breakfast, to what you're watching, to what you're listening to, to how you're relating to a neighbor when you're taking out the trash at the end of the day. And I was in office hours again with my professor, and my professor was saying, Jim, you're welcome to write about this if you want to. I don't anticipate a great grade based on what I'm hearing so far because you're biting off way more than you can chew. And then I told him more about, well, just hear me out. I'm talking more about this, talking more, more about this. He said, hold on, Jim, this is a 20-page paper. And if, as you're telling me, Christianity and Christ Christian ethics really is about everything, that's way too big a topic for 20 pages. And he said, and honestly, it sounds a little confusing to me. If Christian ethics is about everything, how do I park my car in the morning? If I'm driving to an area where there's limited parking, do I park here? Do I leave it for somebody else? I have to run it through this giant ethical system? So we're just talking ethics here. So 
I narrowed the scope of the paper. It was fine. I was sad that I didn't solve all ethical problems in the history of the world with my undergraduate philosophy paper, but I just had to settle for something smaller. But that series of interactions stuck with me. Thinking about my professor saying, Jim, this is just about ethics. It's not about everything. But then flipping it around, I thought to myself, isn't that interesting? That quote-unquote Christian ethics is not just about ethics? In some narrowly defined sense, but it really is about everything. And actually, if you think about it, that's what makes it beautiful to me. That's what makes it deeply, deeply, deeply compelling. And I'll put it this way. Jesus Christ is a good master, but a bad mixer. Okay? Good master, bad mixer. Kind of funny about Jesus. He's awesome if he's the center of your life, but the gears will start to grind in your life at the same time if Jesus is your add-on or your accessory, or part of a life much bigger than just what that Jesus part is. That's where Jesus starts not to work as well, because he's designed to be more than that. And in fact, Jesus being everything, and therefore Christian ethics being about everything because Jesus is everything, is what the Apostle Paul is driving at in his letter to the Colossian church. And we just read a small part of Colossians chapter 2. We've been saying over and over again here on Sunday mornings, Jesus is everything. And so it stands to reason, living for Jesus, Christian ethics is about everything. Not just part of me, but all of me. Not just part of the world, but all of the world. Spoiler alert, that's why it's Spoiler alert again, that's why it's true. That's why it's real. And what do you know in our verses here this morning, just a tiny text from Colossians chapter 2, the everythingness of Jesus, Christian ethics, and the Christian life is captured here by Paul in a single word. Everything about being a follower of Jesus in all of its different ethical and life directions is captured here in the single word walk. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, Colossians 2.6, so walk in him. That's what it's all about. And obviously, walk here is a metaphor, but what a great one. And you might be thinking, that's it? That's a big reveal? Walk is the encapsulation of everything about what it is to be a follower of Jesus in every aspect of your life in the world. Something as mundane, something as practical, something as everyday as walking? Exactly. Exactly. It's every bit as basic as putting one foot in front of another. Nothing is as demanding, but nothing is as satisfying at the same time. So two parts from here, as we talk about walking with Jesus, we're going to talk walk, 
we're going to talk the walk. And then why? So walk and then why? And sorry to give you this cliffhanger, but here's a cliffhanger for you. We've just wrapped up Paul's really, really long introduction, going all the way from Colossians 1.1, the beginning of the letter, all the way through the beginning of Colossians 2.1. We're just now beginning the meat, the body, the turducken of the letter. But we're going to take a break from Colossians right after this for, for the season of Advent. It's going to be a sermon series for Advent, the Christmas season, talking about instead, in this case, for this year, the servant songs of Isaiah. That's going to be a lot of fun coming up starting this coming Sunday. But for now, we're going to take a little bit of break from Colossians just as we're getting into the meat. Couldn't have planned it any better. But here we are. And so on one hand, Paul has summarized everything so far in such an encapsulated form again at the beginning of Colossians 2.6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, everything so far, You've received Christ Jesus, rolling up into a ball all of the stuff that Paul has said so far. And then by that same token, the so walk in him introduces all of the practical stuff that Paul is going to talk about in the next couple of chapters. A little word nerdy stuff here, just for a second. Walk, whether here in the English or the original language, ancient Greek, is an imperative. It's a command. This is the first imperative or the first command that Paul has given in the entirety of the book of Colossians so far. Paul has used a lot of words. None of them have been imperatives so far. None of them have been commands. This is the first one. So walk, and then starting here for the next couple of chapters, a ton of imperatives, a ton of commands. Because Paul is digging in to what he really, really wants to talk about to the Colossian church. And so let's explore this image walk, and then we'll talk about an alternative as well. Walk, think about it. One invitation that affects everything. As mundane, as practical, as everyday, as putting one foot in front of another. In Colossians 2.6 at the very end, so walk, not just anywhere, or in any way. Do you remember the Old Monty Python skit, The Ministry of Funny Walks, classic. Not just any which way, although it'll look different ways, I guess, for different people. But you walk in him, in Jesus. That's what it's all about. Now, over the past few years at Liberty Collingswood, for example, we talk about embodying the Christian story as followers of Jesus will cause us to practice a third-way walk and worldview. That walk there is placed in that phrase intentionally, based on this word and this biblical concept. Because being a follower of Jesus is not just theory. It's not just some big idea. And sometimes when I hear Christians talking about worldview, that's all it is. All these ideas, 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 which are super important. But it's not just Rococo ideas. It is practical walking. How does it affect absolutely everything that you are and everything that you do. It is the one invitation that affects everything, not just sometimes or some of yourselves, but all the time and for all of you. When should we walk with Jesus and in Jesus? All the time. Doing business. 
brushing, when you're washing, when you're listening, when you're resting, in your work time, in your downtime, when you're paying bills, when you're texting friends, when you're talking with loved ones, and on down the line. Every aspect. Think of it this way. Picture what you're doing this week. Not just the big scary things or the giant to-dos, but as you're able to know, and I'm somebody that, I am a hyper, I'm an internally hyper-scheduled person, so I could tell you what I hope to be doing, say, at 2.32 this Thursday, just to be able to have, have that schedule out in my mind. It's okay if you're not quite neurotic. <laughs> That's fine. But to one, sense or, one extent or another, what are you going to be doing Tuesday at 8.30? What are you going to be doing, give or take, Wednesday at 5? What are you going to be doing Friday at 9? What are you going to be doing Saturday at 10.20? Wherever you can picture yourself in those different moments of calendar snatches throughout the day and the week, whatever, wherever you are, in those moments, you are called to walk with Jesus. Right there and right then, right now. So we start walking. That's what we're going to talk about for these next couple of chapters beginning in January. Walking with Jesus. So if that's model A, brand X, on the other hand, what's the alternative, say, to walking with Jesus? This is what I could come up with. The alternative to walking with Jesus is just floating in self. Right? And whether you're here this morning as a committed Christian follower of Jesus, if that's not who you are, you're somewhere in between. Thank you so much for being in our midst. We try to say that every week at multiple points in the worship service. But skeptic or Christian... Isn't the default for us way too much of the time? We're just floating. And for me, it's not walking with Jesus, although that's what I'm called to do. Floating in gym. And in my narcissistic moments, floating in gym might, found, might sound great. It's actually not. It's really not great at all. And forever... Whoever you are, floating in you, also probably is not that great. That's when we can feel malaise or numb or discontented or what are we even doing here, sort of floating. The alternative, and I hope this would be attractive not only to committed followers of Jesus, but others as well. What if I could walk in Jesus instead? What a rooted existence that would be. And let's use this holiday season as a bookend. How do we avoid floating in self? Well, on one hand of the holiday, be thankful. Be more grateful than you are. I think that's good human practice. And in fact, that's also a Christian call. Give thanks in all things, Paul says. And then also use Advent. We're going to be rolling out devotionals. We're going to be doing special activities and stuff for you to be able to really get in the Advent season, the beginning of the liturgical calendar for the Christian church worldwide. Every Advent here at Liberty Collingswood, we try and provide you some footholds, some little foot pads where you can take some more steps practically, mundane, 
practical every day of following Jesus better as you walk in him. And also the why. Here at Liberty Collingswood, we talk about how the, the bottom line of following Jesus is that the imperative follows the indicative. Again, to go back to word nerd. The indicative. What Jesus has already done, not a command, simply a fact in history. Jesus has come. He's lived with us. He's died for us. He's risen again. Whatever you believe or don't believe, do or don't do, should or shouldn't do, that changes none of that. It just happens. And we're called to receive it. And all of the commands, the imperatives of living Jesus out are based on what Jesus already has done. And it's good news. Christian ethics professors will say that the, the bottom line of the Christian life is become who you are. Become who you already are. In Jesus already, because he died for your sins and conquered sin, death, and the devil on the cross, you are already forgiven. You are already loved. You are already given the Holy Spirit. Now live. You don't have to do stuff so that you can get the Holy Spirit, so that you can get love, so that you can earn forgiveness. That's backwards, right? That's the imperative before the indicative. The gospel turns it on its head. You are already loved. You are already forgiven. You're already granted the Spirit. You're already renovated. Now start taking steps. One of my favorite verses from Paul, I've used these in sermons before too, from Philippians 2. Either this is nonsense or it's the greatest thing in the world. When Paul says in the second chapter of his letter to the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The imperative. But it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the indicative. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a lot of trying. That's a lot of doing. That's a lot of pressing. That's a lot of driving. But Paul says, don't forget for a second that you're united to Jesus. And God himself, by his Holy Spirit, is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Now that's either malarkey or mystery. Bogus or beautiful. But as we stand on the scriptures, we say, that's the most gorgeous paradox in the history of all of creation. We're called to work and live for Jesus, but it's God who works and lives in us by the Holy Spirit. Which means, among other things, you can do this. You can do it. You can do it. We've already received this Jesus. That's the basis of the claim, and it's given that the therefore as you receive Jesus, that received word is really rich. It, it goes back into the Hebrew scriptures. It's this ancient Judaic concept. When you've received something, it's not only bare belief, but there's a received tradition that comes down, kind of like the language of, now, youngling, we will teach you the ancient way. As it has been passed down from generation to generation, now you are receiving this great tradition. And in some ways, Christian baptism, which we're going to practice in just a little while here this morning, is an instance of that reception of the Jesus walk from generation to generation to generation. You've received this deposit already, so when we walk, we walk with help. Word nerd, one more time, 
these participles in verse 7, they're mostly passive. So Paul says here, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, Jesus, and established in the faith. That's the fragrance of a divine passive where you got to walk, you got to try, you got to press. But God is at work. He's already rooted you. He's already built you up. He's already established you. And you're forgiven before you start because of what Jesus has done. One more alternative. What's the alternative to being rooted in Jesus? Similar to what we've been talking about earlier, rooted in self. But to me, for a human being to be rooted in self is a contradiction. That's just not how we're made. It's not how we're wired. And if it just makes sense as far as the cultural drinking water right now, the air that we're breathing, the, 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 the dialogue and the conversations that we're hearing, it makes intuitive sense culturally speaking to say for meaning, for purpose, for identity, and for hope, look inside. Reach deep inside yourself, right? That kind of sounds like something that people say and believe but it actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We're not made for that. Is it good for us for human beings as a primary source of meaning, identity, hope, and purpose to look inside, look inside, look inside, look inside all the time? We're putting too much weight there on the atomistic self. And for example, by contrast, that's not how we raise our kids. And yes, looking inside, digging deep, that's part of a complete breakfast, right? We should do that. We should be resilient. But then on the other hand, when our kids, and for those of you that have had kids, picture trying to color within the lines, trying to tie your shoes for the first time. Hey, little one, I love you. When you get stuck, dig deeper. Look inside. Figure it out yourself. Make sure that you're anchored only in you as you try to color within the lines or tie the shoes. That's not what we say. With little anger children, when you get stuck, ask for help. We love you. Ask mommy, ask daddy, ask a friend, ask a sibling. We are designed and made not primarily to keep drilling down, drilling down, drilling down, drilling down in ourselves. And that's a little bit like the snake eating its own tail. Instead, reach outside. That's how we're made. A friend of mine in high school went by the nickname Sa. Classic high school nickname. S-A. Sa. That was his name. We, we were jealous of him, kind of, because he had his own car. His parents let him ride their old beater. It was a Mercedes kind of awesome, but it was a beater. So this was in the 90s. This Mercedes was from the mid-70s. It took up the length of a whole city block, probably weighed six tons and got 0.6 miles to the gallon, but it was awesome. Growing up in New Orleans, all those humid summers, no air conditioning. Germans didn't have air conditioning in their cars back then. That was for weak-minded people. Diesel. And after driving it for about a year and a half, Saw was dropped off at school one day by his mom. We're like, dude, where's the Mercedes? And he's like, uh, it's, it's not here anymore. We're like, why? He's like, well, it had some car trouble. What happened? 
It's like, well, uh, it wasn't exactly car trouble. Do you get in an accident? No. He's like, what happened, Saw? I just got confused, and I filled it up with unleaded one day instead of diesel. And the engine light came on, but I kept driving for a while anyway, and the car's done. It's totaled. Mom's going to be dropping me off for a long time now. We're like, Saw, you idiot. Like, and it's not like you just got the car, too. You've been pumping diesel for a year and a half, but the car was just not made to run on unleaded. All that is to say, the current cultural moment emphasis on look inside for everything, trust nothing or no one beyond yourself at all times and all places and circumstances, that is not how we are wired. And we're going to break down. So start walking. And this is how we'll end. We'll circle here. The best part about walking in Jesus is that you don't need to start an expert. You don't need to be an expert to start. Going back to little kids one more time, if you've had kids or if you've been around babies and toddlers taking their first steps, how often have you heard or seen when that little tyke making his or her first steps, tentative, shaky, maybe just a couple of steps and then stumbles down again, and the parent says, I've seen better. You call that a walk? You make drunken sailors look like champion walkers. The well-balanced walker club called, and so on. I'm ashamed of that sorry excuse for a walk. Parents don't say that. I, I mean, you're with a serial killer if, if, you, if a parent actually says that. Instead, whether it's you or you've seen this happen, you're doing great. Look at that. You're taking steps. That's awesome. Though you stumbled after a couple, that's okay. We are so excited for what you are doing right now. We can't wait to support you so that you can try again. Here, let me help you. Hold my hand a little bit, then I'm going to take my hand away. But you've got this. Oh, you fell again. That's fine. This is going to be awesome. I am so proud of you. Now, I don't have a Bible verse specifically behind this, but to triangulate a little scriptural intuition... If the Bible says that in Jesus, as we receive him by faith, God is our heavenly father, and we are adopted sons and daughters of this high king, our great and good father, and if God the father delights in us, his children, I've got to believe that for as messed up and sinful as we are, and we are, when we take these stuttering steps of walking with Jesus, God our heavenly father is not, I've seen better. Or I'm so ashamed of you. Or you call that a walk. God instead is that loving parent that says, this is awesome. I am so delighted. I am so proud. Here, let me help you. 
And so as we enter this Advent season, start with something. You have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Maybe pick one thing where you say, I want to walk with Jesus better here. I want to put this aspect of my life under Jesus' lordship more. And take it to him. Ask for him. Seek the grace and mercy of Jesus. In this Advent, this Christmas, as you bide, as you relate, as you rest, in everything else. If Jesus is everything, he's about everything for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.